All right, if you got your Bibles, go ahead, open them up. We're in the book of Ruth. If you need a Bible, if you don't have a physical Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. I see Kyung back there. He might be able to hand one to you. Just keep your hand raised, and he can hand you a Bible. Um, just where we're going in the next few uh, weeks, we, uh, we're studying this sermon series called Great Stories, and we're looking at these wonderful stories from the Old Testament and trying to understand what do they mean for us today. Today, I'm preaching on the, the book of Ruth out of the Old Testament, and in the next two weeks, we have our two elders, so I, myself, and Kyung and Darren Poon serve as a kind of a three-headed eldership team here at, our, at this church, and in the next two weeks, Kyung will be preaching next week on the story of Joshua. And then the following week, uh, Darren will be preaching on the book of Job and about suffering. I just want to say these two men are incredible. I get to serve um, just in a rock star team. These guys love the Lord deeply, and I'm so excited for you to get a chance to hear their heart. Some of the backbone and some of the, the love and sweat that goes into seeing this church sustain and get the work done, uh, you're going to get to hear the hearts and those men and, and hear from them. So bless them as they get to teach. This is out of their ordinary. They're not up here every week, but they, uh, they pour their heart into what they do, and so I'm excited for you to get to hear from them. Today, we come to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, I love it so much, I named one of my daughters after it. It's the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And uh, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes in a different place than our Bibles. Our, our English Bibles, they change the order of the books from the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Uh, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament comes directly after the book of Proverbs. Now, if you're a really astute Bible student, you might know that the very last chapter of Proverbs is Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31 is all about the ideal godly wife. What, what does a godly woman and a godly wife look like? That's Proverbs 31. And then the very next chapter, we're introduced to Ruth. Ruth is an incredible story of an incredibly godly woman who would one day become uh, part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Now, while the story of Ruth is a true story of a woman that would become part of the lineage of Jesus, the story is much bigger than just Ruth. Actually, this story, if, if I could pick one word to summarize the entire book of Ruth, it's the word providence. Providence. It's an interesting word, one that we don't use as much as we should in the church. Uh, I don't actually use that in my preaching all that often when I think of the word providence. But this book is all about providence. Now, what is providence? Providence is God's invisible guiding hand who's sovereignly working all things for his glory. Let me say that again. Providence is describing God's invisible hand that's working in all parts of our life to bring all of history, both your personal history and all of world history, towards glorifying God. There's not one moment of your entire life that's outside of God's providential control. He's over it all. He's over everything. And the story of Ruth is this powerful, simple story. It's just a simple little story in the Old Testament, but it's there because it teaches us such a deep truths about God's providential hand. So where we're going today, I wanna to teach this book, and as we go through it, I wanna pause here and there to remind us of the deeper principles and values that we learn and how this points us to Jesus Christ, and particularly what we learn about this idea of providence. So three principles of providence for you today. We're gonna to see as we go through this story, three principles of providence. Now, this is four chapters, just so you know. I'm not gonna be able to read it word for word. I'm gonna be telling you this story, and you can follow along with it uh, in your Bibles as I, as I tell it to you. So three principles. Principle number one is this. God can and does work through broken pasts to accomplish his glory. 
God can and does work through broken pasts to accomplish his glory. Our story begins in Bethlehem. Interesting, huh? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem would be the little town that Jesus would be born in eventually, but years and years and years prior to that, we come across the first story in Bethlehem, which is the story of Ruth, and it's in the period of Judges. If you were actually to turn your page back just one page in the Bible, we have an entire book called Judges, and Judges is a terrible time period in in, in the history of God's people. The people have settled into the land of Israel, but there's there's no king, and, and everyone's just doing whatever pleases them. The book of Judges has some of the most horrific stories in all of scripture. You got stories of murder, stories of rape, stories of pillaging, stories of backstabbing, stories of godlessness. Judges is the, it's hard to label one low point, but this is certainly a major low point in the history of the people of God. And in the midst of that low point, we discovered a handful of people that are determined to live differently. They're living in a society gone mad. They're living in a society just rebellious to all of God's commands. And we just meet a handful of people that say, we're going to do this differently. But it doesn't start off that way. Actually, it starts off with a handful of folks who are living just like everybody else, disobeying God. We meet a man named Elhimelech. Now, the name Elhimelech literally means, my God is my king. But what we discover about Elhimelech is that it's the farthest thing from the truth. A famine comes over Bethlehem. Now, the word Bethlehem in Hebrew literally means house of bread. So ironically, there's no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine in Bethlehem. And Ahimelech and his wife and their two sons move to Moab. Now, this was something they weren't supposed to do. What are God's people supposed to do in the midst of hardship? They're supposed to trust him. They're supposed to believe that he's got things under control. They're supposed to obey his commands, and God would provide. In fact, Moab was one place they were certainly not supposed to go. Moab was one of the pagan nations surrounding Israel. It was one of their chief enemies. If you go back in the Bible, Moab was founded in an incestuous relationship. That's how Moab got founded. It was an incestuous relationship that this one child grew up, Moab, to create the, the nation of Moab. And, and that kind of, that, that value system ended up permeating all of Moab. They were a people that were known for some of the the atrocities of the Old Testament days. They worshipped a god named Chemosh, who was known for demanding human child sacrifice. That that was what the nations around Israel were doing. And so Ahimelech, he, he comes into this famine in Bethlehem. He takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they move into Moab thinking, maybe if I just move in the midst of these people, then things won't go as bad for me. Well, as it turns out, things begin to go actually worse for them. They're trying to get food. They're just trying, what can I do to survive? Well, I'm not going to trust God with what he told me to do. Let's just try it this way. But things get far worse for them. Naomi, Elhimelech's wife, her life spins out of control. She... uh, as they move there, she starts to realize that her, her family is disobeying God right, left, and center. The two sons, Elhimelech and Naomi, the two sons, they each take a wife from among the Moabites. Now, this was forbidden. Moving to Moab was one thing. Intermarrying with Moabites was a whole other level of sin. That was an expressly forbidden command. Do not intermarry, and the Moabites were listed with who they were not supposed to intermarry with. One of the sons marries a woman named Orpah. The other son marries a woman named Ruth. The name Orpah quite literally means stiff-necked, stiff-necked. And it's this idea that she's just stubborn in her ways. 
And the name Ruth means beautiful companion, loyal companion. Well, they're starting to settle into Moab. Their family's now grown. There's these two young women who have joined Elhimelech's family in Naomi's. But then tragedy strikes. First, Elhimelech passes away in Moab. The head of the house dies. Naomi is left a widow without a husband. Now, you have to remember, in those days, to be a widow was even more dangerous than to be a widow in these days. There are hardships that widows in our day and age have to face. How are they going to provide for themselves? How are they going to make sure everything gets done in their life that needs to get done? When they grow old, who's going to take care of them? But in those days, there was another layer because it was dangerous. They didn't have police like we have. If you were a widow in those days, someone could break into your home, and if you didn't have a defender of your home, that's what the head of the house was. He was a physical defender for your home. If you didn't have a defender for your home, you had no chance. To to be a widow in those days was nearly a death sentence, unless you had some strong men around you who would care for you. That's where the people of God would step in. But, But Naomi's wife does. Then her two sons die. Both sons, all the men in the house die. Naomi, literally, she gets so depressed, she changes her name to a Hebrew term that means bitter. She takes the identity of one who is who's utterly bitter. And, and she's just kind of moping in this and, and, and having a hard time trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do? She hears that there's food again in Bethlehem, her hometown. You've got to get in the mindset of Naomi. She's just lost everything, but she grew up in Bethlehem. That's where she's known. She's got some family back in that place. She has some childhood friends back in Bethlehem. She hears there's food back there. All she can do is just go back home. So she goes to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, who are also young widows at this point. Again, for them, young widows, very dangerous. She says, children, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. It's where I'm from. You stay here. Go on with your life. Well, the one daughter, Orpah, gives her a hug and says, okay, I'll leave. And she leaves and she goes back to her family who are Moabites. But Ruth turns to Naomi and she has these lines that are just so beautiful. Lines that are good memory verses for every Christian. Ruth 1, 16 to 17. Ruth looked at Naomi and said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I want you to think about Ruth's words here and what she's committing to. Here's a young woman who's lost her husband, and now her mother-in-law is going back to the mother-in-law's hometown. She's young. Her name means beautiful companion. She's a young, beautiful woman. She, she potentially could marry again in her hometown, but she sees the hardship Naomi is going through and she pledges her whole life to Naomi. She says, I'll go with you. I'll be here for you, Naomi. I'm not gonna leave you. I see the hardship you're in and I'm gonna move and go to Bethlehem. Now you gotta understand how dangerous this was. Moabites were hated in Israel for a reason. They were enemies of the people of God. But here's this young Moabite woman saying, I'll take that hardship. I'll be that person that's hated. I'll go to your hometown, Naomi, and I'll be an outsider who nobody wants here, but I'll do it because I love you, because I see you, and because I want to support you and strengthen you. I'm going to be there for you. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, we read, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. These are the commands. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord. 
She won't even be able to be a part of the religious institution because of her Moabite background. She's essentially cutting herself off from what she knows as life, but she's doing it because she loves Naomi. She pledges herself to Naomi. Now, let me see if I can develop this a little bit. What what, what did I start off by saying the first principle was? God can and does work through broken paths to accomplish his glory. Now, before we even go on in this story, what we need to know is this story has a remarkable ending. Ruth becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, but she's got more brokenness to go through before she gets there. But I want you to look at her background. She has an unbelievably broken past. Here's a young woman who's just lost her husband. She's experienced a lot of death recently. She's moving to a part, of the, a part of the world where she's gonna be an outsider. She won't be understood. There's gonna be language barriers there. There's gonna be cultural barriers there. Here's this woman who has all of the wrong background for success, all of the wrong background to make sure that she's gonna have a blessed life. Things should go hard for her. And yet God's able to use broken paths and broken backgrounds. The message here is not that you can do whatever you want with no consequences, certainly not, right? We look at Elhimelech and his sons. They died as a consequence of their sins. The, the message is not that you can just do whatever you want and God's, you know, he's just, it's just gonna be perfect. There's no consequences for it. But the message is, at least from Ruth's life, that no matter how broken your past is, no matter what you've been a part of, no matter what you've experienced in your life, God is able and can and will, as a follower of Christ, use it for your glory. We see this in the, first, in, in the Bible all over the place. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, at one point in chapter 6, he lists out all these sins. He, he says, look, we know that you, you cannot be an adulterer and inherit the kingdom of God. You, you cannot be a thief or a slanderer or perjurer and inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, verse 11, and such were some of you. The Apostle Paul looks to the church, the members of the church, he says, remember, you were adulterers, you were perjurers, you were liars, you were thieves, you were drunks, but, but, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This, this is the story of what our God does. He takes people with broken backgrounds and then he reorients their whole life to follow God. Do you notice in Ruth what she says? She doesn't just say, I'm gonna follow you, Naomi. She says, your God will be my God. See, what had happened with Ruth is she had tasted the goodness of the God of Israel. Here she was, a Moabitess. She only knew about Chemosh and who he was. And then there were, even though Naomi and Elhimelech were, were in a foreign land and they were sinning, they still had a hint of the goodness of the God of Israel. And Ruth tasted of it and she said, that, that God is different. I'm gonna follow him. And if that means now clinging to Naomi, I'll do it. See, God's able to use your broken past. This is what he does. Think of all the stories of the Old Testament. God uses Abraham. Abraham had an affair. Abraham did what he wasn't supposed to do. He, he, the promise was to Sarah, but he had a child with Hagar. Rahab, as best as we can tell, she was a, a prostitute in a military outpost. That's not the language that's used, but that's the best we can tell about what Rahab was doing. And yet Rahab has a spot in the hall of fame of faith in the book of Hebrews. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Jonah fled the call of God. Matthew, the apostle Matthew, was a corrupt tax collector. The disciple named Simon, he was a, he was a political zealot who was known for violence to accomplish political ends before Jesus got a hold of him. The apostle Paul oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr. This is what God does. He takes people who have these broken backgrounds and then he works new life into them. Now this ought to do a handful of things to those in the room. 
perhaps you're in here today and, and you're thinking about the mistakes and the sins you've committed in your life. And you're a little skeptical of the, the, the level of transformation that Jesus can bring to you. Maybe you're in here, and I hear this often. I, I, I want, you're living one life. You've got these areas of your life that are outside of what God would desire of you. You've tasted of God a little bit, but you just have this kind of stubborn heart mindset that says, I'm just always gonna be this way. And the best I'll ever get to do is just kind of lean my foot in one, you know, one foot and just get a little taste of God over here. But, but this is really who I am. I'm just wired different. No, that's not the God of the Bible. That every person's story in the Bible that we come across is someone who is over here, who God gets a hold of them and transforms them, and he uses their past for his glory. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who are to believe in him for eternal life. God desires to change you. He wants to see a, a Ruth-like change in your life. Others in this room are confident in their, in their Christian faith today, but you need to be reminded where you came from so that you never boast in your faith. Every single follower of Jesus has a background like Ruth. Every single follower of Jesus came from a place where we were, we were rebels to God in some way, but God got a hold of us. This is your story. This is who you were, and now he's, he's, he's given you faith to say, this is my God. That's a gift he gave you. Before we move on from this point, I just want you to know, what we see in Ruth is this sacrificial, clinging love. And in that way, Ruth points us to Jesus Christ. In fact, we might say that Jesus Christ is the, the greater Ruth, because just like Ruth clung to Naomi and said, I will never leave you, I will be with you in the hardship, when you place your faith in Jesus, he clings himself to you. In fact, we call that union with Christ, that's the term of it. He bonds himself to you in this spiritual union where he says, I will be with you in everything you'll ever go through. There's no valley you'll ever walk through, no hardship you'll ever go through, that I will not be with you and I will not cling to you. God uses our broken past. Number two, God providentially provides for the vulnerable through the charity of his people. This is very important. We're talking about how does providence work? How does God's guiding hand work? God providentially provides for the vulnerable through the charity of his people. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem and they've hit low. They're widows. They have no money. They have no men in their life. They have no assets to produce money. They are the closest thing to dead you can be at that point. But among the people of God, there was a law. There was a law called the Gleanings Law. Now, this is very important. They've arrived in the middle of the harvest, of the barley harvest in Israel. Now, the gleanings law is such that if you owned a farm, let's say you were a farmer in that day, and you were kind of, you know, taking care of your property and you were gathering your, your harvest in, God said, gather your harvest, but leave the edges of the field unharvested. In other words, just think of the, the cornfields or the wheat fields that we drive by when you go down I-65. Those farmers, if they were following God's law, cannot harvest the edges of their field. And the reason for it is that God says the poor and those who have no food need to be able to do an honest day's work and get that food and be able to bring it home for them. This was functionally like a welfare system among the people of God in the Old Testament. 
It was a way of providing for the poor and the vulnerable. It wasn't a free handout. They had to go do hard work. That was hard work to gather the food and prepare it. But those who had much would leave the edges of their field unharvested. Why? Because in God's kingdom, nobody goes hungry. In God's kingdom, among the people of God, everybody will have enough. That doesn't mean that there's not some who have more and some who have less, but everyone gets provided for. This was the law of God. Now, in the book of Judges in that time period, where everybody, all the hardship is going, my guess is that not many people were following that law. You've got a whole bunch of people who are supposed to be people of God who I'm guessing are, are cutting all the edges of their field. But Ruth gets back, and we read in chapter 2, verse 3, Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to a man named Boaz, who was of the clan of Elhimelech. That was her father-in-law. Elhimelech was. Now, when we meet Boaz, Ruth providentially, right, she just happens to stumble into the field of a man named Boaz who just so happens to be a distant relative of Elhimelech, who was her father-in-law. Now, we're going to get to why that's important in a moment, but look at this providence. Ruth is being guided in hardship, and she doesn't know it, but God is guiding this young woman to the exact field he needs to go, she needs to go to to be provided for. And she comes to Boaz's field. Now, who's Boaz? His name literally means strength. That's what his name means. This is one man we know of in this time period that's honoring God. He's doing what he can to follow God, to honor God. In fact, the text tells us that he's a worthy man. That's something that every man ought to aspire to be, a worthy man. And that means that he's honoring the gleanings law. And so you have Boaz, who's a business owner. He's got his reapers going and gathering his harvest. But he's got all the poor and the vulnerable going through his field, trying to get some food to survive on. Well, Boaz arrives at his field after Ruth has already taken her place, gathering some of the food to go get it back to Naomi. Again, that was hard work for a man. Here's young Ruth. She's doing the hard work. And Boaz looks out. He asks his men, who's, who's that young woman over there? Well, his, his men come up to her and say, well, you've heard of Naomi. You remember Naomi, Elhimelech? That's that young Moabite woman who came back. Remember, we've heard the rumors. Remember, Bethlehem's a small town. If any of you have been in a small town, you know how rumors spread. You've heard the stories of, of Naomi and Ruth. Well, Naomi's back, and that's that young Moabite woman. Well, Boaz looks at her, and he thinks about the distress that she's in. And Boaz, as a man of honor, begins to show compassion to Ruth. He begins to step into her brokenness for her. He begins to pour extravagance on her. She see, he sees this poor girl struggling on welfare of that day, trying to do her best, and he lavishes her with gifts. In fact, he gives her a break in the middle of the day. He sits her down. He says, come, come, eat some bread and wine, interestingly. Have some bread and wine. Take a bit of bread, dip it into this wine. Just rest, daughter. Just rest, at the end of the day, she has her pile, but then he tells the reapers, his professional reapers, he says, hey, look, see, the, see the, the, the grain that she's harvested? Go to my storehouse, get some of the bundles we got from yesterday, give those to her as well. And then he, he, he sends her home with, with all this extra food. He says, in chapter two, verse eight, then Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. What's he doing there? He's providing for Ruth safety. Why? Where do you think it was a very dangerous place to be as a young, beautiful woman in those days? Out in the field. That was probably the most dangerous place it could be. And so Boaz says to her, do not go to any other field. 
don't go anywhere, Ruth. I'm gonna provide for you. I see your hardship, and I'm gonna make sure you have enough. And then he turns to his men, and he says, if you touch her, you're done. That's what Boaz does. He says, you touch her, you're gonna have to deal with me. She has free reign to gather as much food as she needs in this place. What's remarkable is that this is the same kind of love, just in a different way, that Ruth has already shown to Naomi, isn't it? Ruth has already shown this love to Naomi. She didn't know how God was gonna work it out, but she had poured herself out in extravagant compassion towards Naomi, said, I'm gonna be with you, and now God is using someone else to pour extravagant compassion into Ruth's life. God providentially provides for the vulnerable through the charity of his people. This is what we see of the people of God, both in the Old and the New Testament. I want to develop this a little bit, and I want to make sure we understand the role we are to play as we study the book of Ruth. God has all kinds of laws that are specifically designed if God's people would follow them, if we would live by what the standards he has. The poor and the vulnerable among us would be provided for. We just had Brian up here a little bit ago to share about stepping into foster care and caring for the least of these, caring for young young children who need a home, who need security, who need to be in a a Christian home. One of the reasons Christians over years have stepped so powerfully into adoption, one of the reasons adoption is what adoption is today is because Christians stepped into this place. We have always cared for the vulnerable among us. This is what we do. Jesus taught on this over and over again. Listen to this one teaching of his, Luke chapter 14. Jesus said, he says, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends. This one's always troubled me. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or the rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Over and over again, Jesus has this particular heart for the poor, for the vulnerable, for those who are in trouble, for those who are, they don't know which way to turn, for, for the immigrant, for the refugee. Over and over again, we come across this theme that this is what God's people are to do. They're supposed to step into brokenness and love, love people. The Apostle Paul, when he met with those in Jerusalem to try to figure out, what does this look like to be an apostle now? He, he comes and he writes, he, he gives all the instructions that, that, that he was given, the freedom that he had to preach to the Gentiles. And then Galatians chapter two, verse 10, Paul says, Only the apostles in Jerusalem, they asked us to remember the poor. And this is amazing. The very thing I was eager to do. Paul is given permission. The apostle Paul, go, preach the gospel. Wherever you go, preach the gospel. But the one thing the apostles wanted to make sure he didn't forget, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. That must be a heartbeat of your whole ministry, Paul. And he says, that's what I was eager to do. Why was he eager to do that? Because he was living off the exact same laws that Boaz was living off of. He saw it woven all through the Old Testament. This is what God's people do. We take care of the vulnerable among us. Again, for some of you, you might be in a situation like Boaz. Maybe you're in a situation right now where you have considerable assets. Boaz was a man of significant wealth. He had a large business he was running. He told people what to do. He gave commands to his reapers. And he was able to provide out of his abundance for the vulnerable among him, among Israel. And maybe you're in that situation today. And what God is calling you to do is to remember that you are to glean, you are to let room in your wealth for those to glean among you. We, we don't, you know, 
we don't have field. Most of you aren't farmers. <laughs> Some of you might be farmers. Most of you aren't farmers. But what you have to do with the law is you have to say, what was the heart of the Old Testament law? Why did God make that law? What was he trying to instill in the people of God? And then you figure out, what does that look like for me to implement that law in modern day? It might not mean leaving the edges of your field unharvested, but you have to look at what is your field. What are you leaving for the vulnerable around you to make sure that they have enough? See, in God's providence, what he does is he crosses our paths through his invisible hand. This is God's providence in the book of Ruth. He's constantly bringing those who have needs into our path. And the Christian is the one like Boaz who looked out and saw someone new in the field and said, who's that person over there? What's, that, what's their story? But he takes interest in them. And then when he hears their story, he doesn't go, I'm sure someone else will take care of that. He says, I'm taking care of that. That's what a follower of Christ does. They step into it. Some of you don't have the assets and the wealth like Boaz had to, to be able to do that. Maybe you long to be able to do that. You're just not in a season to be able to do that right now. But you know what you do have? You have time. We live in a city that wants to fill our time so full that we have, we have no space even for church on Sunday. <laughs> but God's people must always have margins. They must always leave the, the fields of the edges of their field unharvested so that there's some margin here to care for the vulnerable, to step into hardships among people to be a listening ear, to just love and pray on people. Not pray on people, pray with people. Just as Christ was the greater Ruth, Christ is also the greater Boaz. He's the greater Boaz. Boaz points us to a, a, a powerful intercessory love, a love that's not content just to see us from a distance, but a, a love that steps into our brokenness and literally gives us reprieve in the midst of our hardship. What did Boaz do in the midst of Ruth's very hard day? I don't know if she's ever, I mean, I, I've never done that hard work of harvesting a field. I imagine your muscles are tired. For, for a young woman to do that work, he, he pulls her aside. He breaks bread and wine with her. Well, we're about to take bread and wine. In about 15 minutes, we're going to take bread and wine together. And, and what, what is this? Don't, don't miss what this is. This is Jesus Christ's way of pulling us aside from the midst of our hardship and all that we're going through, pulling us aside in the community of the saints and saying, rest here. Rest here for a moment. Know what Christ has done for you. He went to the cross to forgive you of your sin, fill you with the Holy Spirit, and he loves you. He knows you. There's nothing you go through that he's not providentially in it with you. That's what this signifies. He's for you. Christ is the greater Boaz who stepped into our brokenness for us and he's given us a new life, a new opportunity. Lastly, God providentially blesses righteous living. God providentially blesses righteous living. Well, Ruth gets home. She's loaded up with all this food and she gets home to Naomi and Naomi, you gotta imagine Naomi's eyes and she sees Ruth coming over the hill to the home where they're staying. Ruth loaded up with enough food for the entire winter she says, what happened? Ruth says, you're not going to believe it, but I came into the field of a man named Boaz. I think there's some kind of connection here, Naomi, but, but he, he treated me so kindly. He gave me bread and wine in the middle of the day. He told his men to protect me. He said, I can, I can harvest their all fall and that he's going to provide for our family. Well, see, Naomi knew something about this man, Boaz. Boaz was related to her husband that had passed away. And there was another law among the people of God in Israel. There was another law. It was called the Leveret Marriage Laws. 
And here's what it said. In the Old Testament, if there was a married couple and the husband passed away and the husband had a relative, maybe a brother, the brother, this sounds strange to our modern ears, but bear with me as I explain this law. The brother or the relative of the, of the man who passed away could marry the, the widow and have a child in the, the man who passed away's name so that that child could continue the family name and legacy in, in place of the, the husband who passed away. That sounds strange, right? But here's what it did. What it, it protected and provided for the families in the people of God. So that way, if there were daughters or the wife who is a widow, she would still be provided for. She would have a son in the name of the man who passed away, and that son would take over leading the family and making sure that all that was the family's would continue down through that family line. That was called the Leverett Marriage Law. It was an important law. Well, Naomi says, you went to Boaz's field? He's related to Ahimelech, her former husband. He could redeem you. He could redeem this family. There, there could be a child that could one day lead this family and not all might be lost. So Naomi hatches a plan. Now, Naomi's scheming a little bit here. We don't quite know what Naomi's plan was, but listen to what she does. I'll let you play with it in your imagination. Naomi says, all right, here's what you're gonna do, Ruth, come here. She says, go take a shower. <laughs> take a shower. Put some perfume on. And uh, you're gonna go to Boaz in the middle of the night tonight. You're gonna, you're gonna go where he's sleeping. Now, it's the middle of the harvest, so Boaz, as a strong man, as a, as a worthy man, he would have been defending his property. He would have been sleeping with his harvest in the barn. She says, Ruth, I want you to put perfume on, and I want you to go to Boaz in the middle of the night. And then she says, he'll tell you what to do. Now, what did Naomi have in mind? We don't know, but certainly the text leans towards she might have had some uh, not totally honoring God plans in mind for how to force this action to take place, to force this relationship. Well, Naomi sends Ruth. What's Boaz gonna do when Ruth shows up in, her, in his barn? Ruth, under cover of night, covers herself, goes, she finds Boaz sleeping at the bottom of his, you know, his harvest, and she lays himself at his feet. Boaz awakens to the stir and he sees this young, beautiful woman there at his feet. He says, who are you? Chapter three, verse nine. Boaz says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. A redeemer means one who can fulfill the leveret marriage laws for our family. Now this is a tempting moment. Many men might not have done what Boaz is about to do, but Boaz is a man of honor. He's a man of respect. He looks to Ruth in this unbelievably tempting moment and you can just imagine his heart is beating and he actually, he, he pours his heart out to Ruth. He says, Ruth, he says, you, you would want me to marry you? <laughs> he, say, he says, I, I would be honored to marry you. This is remarkable. Boaz is a man of wealth. He's a man of significance. Ruth is an outsider of the land. Here's Ruth presenting himself to her, and, and Boaz's first step is one of humility. It's one of, you, you, you would want me? He says, look, Ruth, nothing can happen tonight. I'm a man of God, but I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. 
I'm gonna send you home with more food because I'm, I'm gonna make sure your family's provided. <laughs> He's making sure Ruth has enough. Get home while it's still night before anyone can see or think anything wrong has taken place. Let's get you home, okay? But first thing in the morning, notice Boaz. He says, first thing in the morning, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna see what we can do. I'm gonna see if this is possible. Can we fulfill these laws and get married? This is incredible. So Boaz, the very next day, sends her home. Boaz goes to the middle, the gate in the middle of, of Bethlehem. That's where all the men would do their business each day. And he sits there and he waits for the other men of the, of, of the land to come by. Eventually, he determines that there's one other man who's first in line to marry Ruth. If anyone was gonna redeem Naomi's family, there was one other man in Bethlehem who could do it first. Boaz doesn't wanna cheat the system. He's a man of God. There's much at stake doing this the godly way. But he says... Let's do it the godly way. So he finds the man. The man comes to the gate. He says, we don't know this man's name. He says to the man, he says, would you like to redeem Naomi's property? In other words, would you like to redeem the property? Uh, Would you like to include that in your wealth because you're a redeemer? And the man looks at him and says, yeah, of course I'd like the property. Who wouldn't want free property? That's the man's first response. And then Boaz says, well, it comes with one other thing. The young Ruth you'll have to bring her into your family as well. Well, the man who's the first in line to redeem Naomi's family, he considers it for a moment and he looks at Boaz, he says, well, then I have to split my inheritance with her family. He says, no, I don't wanna do that. (laughs) This is the way of the people of God in the book of Judges. This is why Boaz and Ruth are stark differences. You see Boaz, he's doing it all the right way. Notice, he could have lost Ruth in that moment. He could have, but what was God's providential hand doing? He didn't know how the day was gonna turn out. All he knew was, I'm not shortcutting God's system. God has a way. There's someone who's first in line before me, and I'm not gonna shortcut it. And so he he honors God, but God's providential hand is guiding this, and he works it. The man walks away. Boaz turns back to Ruth, and he marries her. Ruth's whole family is provided for. Naomi has a protector in the home. This this story that began in death and brokenness and sin is redeemed by a man who is honoring God and determined to do things the godly way and the family is provided for and Ruth gets brought into the story that would one day bring the birth of the Messiah. She gives birth to a child. Her grandson would be King David. What, What are we seeing here? God providentially blesses righteous living. God loves to honor righteous living. All through the Bible we see that God's people are to seek first the kingdom of God. That's Matthew chapter six, Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Live for God, honor God's laws and it will go well with you. Now this is not the prosperity gospel. Certainly, hardship happens. We're gonna hear out of the book of Job from Pastor, from Elder Darren Poon in two weeks, and he's gonna teach on suffering, that sometimes you live a righteous life and suffering comes on you. But there's a general principle that if you honor God, God's gonna honor you. He's gonna bring blessing into your life, and the blessing might look like a lot of different things. It's not always material, but he will bless you as you honor him. As Christians, we know, we know that no amount of right living can justify us before God. We are, not made, we are not made righteous because we follow God and live up to his standards. No, the Christian is the one who says, I could never do that. In fact, we believe that Jesus Christ has done that on our behalf. He perfectly obeyed the law. He was the greater Boaz. He was the greater Ruth. He is the one who perfectly obeyed every law on our behalf. And then when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, what you're saying is that I, I had a debt to pay because of my sin. I was cut off but one stepped into my place underneath the judgment of God. He paid all of my debt. He gave me life, and then he blessed me with righteousness. 
I'm saved because of what Christ has done, but now I can live rightly unto God because of the Holy Spirit that's been given to me. And we delight to follow God's law. Sometimes what happens is that we think that we've been saved and then we, we can just go on our life living however we want to live without any consequences. That there's not an affection change that needs to come to us. Boaz demonstrates for us that when you follow God, it has to take over your whole life. Every law of his is good. And whenever we come across a law in our life, something God has demanded us of us, either of our mind or our heart or our affections, whenever we come across something God said and we say, you know, I don't like that part. Maybe that's something you're saying right now. Maybe you're looking at the word of God. You're saying, that doesn't make sense to me. That's how Boaz would have been. <laughs> you think Boaz wanted to go to that man first and say, do you want to marry Ruth? Inside, I really want to marry Ruth, but do you want to marry Ruth? No. No, he didn't want to do that. But he, the most important thing to him was honoring God. That was the number one thing he cherished above all else. That's why he gleaned. That's why he left it for the, those to harvest his field. And so, so the, the person who honors Jesus Christ, like, like Boaz, like Ruth, they say, God, every part of your law I want to love. Help bring my life into accordance with what your ways are. God delights in honoring those who are living righteously. Many of us believe that the world is a series of uncontrolled accidents. We look at the world and we think that the world is, is just moving through time and space in a series of uncontrolled accidents. It's just me making a choice and that person making a choice and we're all bumping into each other and we don't quite know where it's gonna go, but it's a little chaotic. And the book of Ruth is all about God's providence. God providentially guides every story of our life. Look back on your own story. I was thinking of my own story this week of what God's brought me through in my life. And I don't know what yet is to come in my own chapters of my life, my family's life, but I can tell you some chapters I've been through. They aren't quite as difficult as what Ruth and Naomi went through, not the same thing, but I've had some chapters. And I look back on those chapters and those hard moments where I, I was genuinely, I, I just didn't know. I remember, I remember just praying Hail Mary prayers. Like God, like this, I, I don't know, I don't know. I have no idea what to do. I, I, don't, I don't even know if you're there. Those kind of prayers. But here's, when I look back on them, I see what God was doing the entire time. He works through every moment of our life, even the hardships. And, and he's providentially guiding us through all of them. And he uses time as a tool to form in us stronger faith in him. And he permits us to go through valleys so that at the end of the day, his story will be perfectly written and his saints will give glory to God even in the midst of hardship. Are you going through hard moments right now? What are you going through right now? Here's what you need to realize. God doesn't have you there on accident. It's not accidental. His providential hand is guiding you just as it did Ruth. He loves you. He sees you. And he wants to form something in you if you will cling to him and follow his law. God's providential hand is guiding all things. It's the story of Ruth. Will you pray with me? Lord, um, such a simple story. And part of the simplicity is the humanity of it. It's just simple, it's people living life. But God, that's our life as well. We're just doing our best to live life and we wanna know what it means to truly follow you and honor you. God, thank you for this powerful story of Ruth. Thank you that you take care of the vulnerable and you do it through all different sorts of means. God, we ask that you would take care of us as well, the same way you've taken care of Ruth. In this room are 100 needs that I don't know. More than that, God, would you meet everyone in providential ways? Would you use this church to care for those who need it today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.